Here we are in Revelation chapter 6. And as we dive in here in this chapter, there are a couple of things that we need to understand before we jump in. And there's a couple of things that uh, just in the flow of this book, you remember in chapter 1, John uh, writing out this revelation given to him by God is, has given us an outline of this letter, this book. And that outline is this, I want you to write the things that you have seen. In chapter 1, John writes out a description of what he sees, and it's the glorified Christ. And it is, it is not the expectation of the guy, you know, who's giving you the hug. You know, the nice, soft, frail man. And then the second uh, part of the outline was this. What you have seen and the things that now are. What is going on in your world today, John? And in chapters 2 and 3, we see that Jesus is moving among the churches And he writes a little progress report for each of them. A progress report not just sent to the parents here, but to be shared among all of the churches. Seemingly very personal, and yet lessons to be learned by all of us. And then the third section is that which must soon come to pass. Future events. That which is is about to be unrolled in the scroll of history future events. And that began in chapters chapter 4 and 5. And here we are in 6 and 7 as the scroll is opened yet a little bit more. And so in that uh, laying out of history of things yet to come, we notice uh, first off that the church has been raptured at this point. You remember in chapter 4, there was a point where uh, many, many scholars agree that uh, when uh, John was, was seeing these things, there was an invitation to come up here. Now, that, that is not good evidence of this by any means, perhaps a hint But this, as it continues to be laid out, and knowing that there will be a day when Jesus will catch up his church, he will snatch up his church, he will meet them in the air, both those who have died, as Paul refers to them, asleep, and those who are living, there will be a day when he will snatch his church. When that will be, we don't know. God doesn't give us calendars. He gives us signs to look out for. But that moment is coming. And there's another reason that I think that we can uh, hold on to that is because the focus is on Israel. Now, this is unusual. We're reading about the church, and the church is not made up of any particular nation, but every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. It is a worldwide church, capital C. It is expressed locally, but exists internationally. There are no borders to the church. And so as we look through the New Testament, you start over here in the Gospels, and we we start with the genealogies that lead to the birth of Christ, His life, His ministry ultimately that leads to His crucifixion, burial, resurrection. And the question is, what next? And we come to the book of Acts And the church that Jesus had talked about is now birthed in Acts chapter 2. 
And so now the church has entered into the world, and God is calling people, not just the Jews that he worked with in the Old Testament, and yet the purpose was to be an influence on the people around them. The church is established, and there is teaching and correction, and and it is extended, and it continues to grow. And, and the focus seems all about the church in the New Testament. And the church is what God is doing. And there we come in this chapter. We're talking about Israel. Because God is not done with the nation of Israel. God made a promise that could not be broken. And while they would fail, God remains faithful. And another thing that we need to note is the things we're going to see here today. I know this is a lot of introduction, but we're diving into these images and these things. Well, what's going on? It's good to see it in the context. We're going to notice that, uh, that also there is a similarity of the events described in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Now, you're good students of the Bible, and you, you hear Matthew 24, 25, you say, that's the Olivet Discourse, and you're correct about that, the Olivet Discourse, and you, you know, some of you might be going, yeah, I remember that, but I forget what was in there, and uh, the Olivet Discourse is a sermon that Jesus uh, preached to his disciples, And it all arose under the occasion of this, is that uh, Jesus and his disciples were walking along, and then they noticed the temple, and they were amazed by this facility, and they said, look, Jesus, how amazing this is. And Jesus looked, and he said, one day, not one stone will be on top of the other. It'll be destroyed. And they asked him two questions. And the two questions in Matthew 24 and verse 3 just sets up the context. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Question number one. Number two, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Jesus was asked two questions, but he only answered one. Now, this is enormously important as we study this. Remember, when we study the book of Revelation, we have to bring in other books alongside of it because, uh, because this is not some isolated quiz to see if you can come up uh, you know, with some imagery here. This is the culmination of all of the things that God has already told us. These prophets back in the Old Testament, they're telling us about what God will do one day. We're like, well, that's interesting, but let's keep going on with Israel here, you know? And, uh, that looks weird. You got the wheels and the wheels and they're moving and uh, we'll just skip those pages. But suddenly you're studying the book of Revelation. All of these things matter. And so there's some key passages like Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, enormously important uh, when you talk about the tribulation period. Seven years Daniel talked about, an angel revealed to him, seven years of tribulation, the first three and a half years, relatively peace, that, that, that Israel would make a seven-year covenant with the Antichrist for peace. And again, relative peace for about three and a half years. 
But midway through, Daniel writes, that covenant will be broken. And everything changes from that point. This is what we're looking at here today. Because following the seven-year tribulation, Jesus will return. His feet will not be in the clouds, but will touch the Mount of Olives, and that mount will split. And he will establish his kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ. And so remember that question. What will be the sign of your coming? You promised to come. You told us how you would come, where you would come, and what would be the impact of your coming. But what are those signs? So let's take a look at a comparison here. Of the things we're going to look at here this morning, comparing them, Revelation 6 and Matthew 24. Notice the subject of war, Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. Famine, verse 7. Death, 7 and 9. Martyrdom, Revelation 6. All of these things appear. So we talked about it. Let's take a look at it here. Comparing these things and we say, hey, wait a minute. It looks like John is recording what these signs are going to be just like Jesus had revealed already. It's kind of a rehashing of old material now, but he's going to write it in a little bit different way here. So let's jump in and take a look. Now, the vision that we're about to look at here, the origin of this vision is in Zechariah chapter 6, 1 to 8. Remember when we were looking at uh, these cherubim and they, 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 they uh, you know, they were three of them, and they, they, they looked funny, and the ox and the eagle, and we're like, what is this nonsense? But again, the Bible had already talked about these things in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, he gave the same description. Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel tells us who they are. And so while at first you come to the book of Revelation, you're like, nobody can understand this stuff. It's crazy. It's a mess. It's like a treasure, It's not just set out on your doorstep here, my friends. It's a map to follow. You have to do a little work to know what God has said. And so here we are in chapter 6, Revelation. We know that it's already been talked about. John, looking back at the things that have already been said, this vision being laid out. And so the origin is in Zechariah 6, 1 to 8. And what we're going to see are four horses, the famed four horses of the apocalypse. Armageddon, apocalypse, oh my, scary words. You remember, the uh, apocalypse simply means revealing, so it's not a scary word. This revealing tends to have some scary things in it. But we're just going to unpack it and take a look at it. And so we're going to see these four horses. We've got a white horse and a black horse and a red horse and a pale horse. And all of these things mean something. But let's remember this. They've already been talked about. And what we learn in Zechariah chapter 6, 1 to 8, is that these four horses that we're going to read about are loosed up upon the earth to deal out vengeance. Okay? In other words, this horse shows up at your house. It's not good news. Suffering will ensue. 
And so the horses and their riders are, are forces of destruction, and they are agents of wrath. So take a look here in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. By way of review, you remember God the Father sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand. And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was found worthy to open it, to break the seven seals, to find out what is within. But the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb who was slain was found worthy. And so as this scroll is opened, this is what we learn. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. So this first seal, this, uh, this, uh, this, this force of destruction is, is uh, given the image of a white horse. But that's not all the details here. Notice this. I heard one of the four living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Not good news. Didn't come to have a cup of tea with you. Maybe uh, make some toast and put a little peanut butter on it. He came out to conquer. This word conquer is the very word where a brand of tennis shoes uh, name has come. We call it Nike. It's a Nike, and it means victory. And uh, commentators look at this, and they say, he's got a crown, and he's got a bow. It doesn't say nothing about arrows, so maybe uh, he's he's, uh, uh, scheming, and uh, there's no warfare to set this up. Uh, Maybe... Maybe a reference to Daniel's seven-year covenant, the political maneuverings of such a thing. Now, uh, honestly, we we can only be guessing at that point. Some people, you know, he doesn't got an arrow, but, uh, you know, that kind of language is used all the time. And they went out with their swords. Yeah, but uh, did they have any shields or did they have to carry them? I mean, you know, we assume what it means is it's going out for warfare. But the issue here is victory which means somebody wins and somebody loses somehow. And uh, some have suggested this is the Antichrist. Uh, He's wearing white and he's got a crown. And he kind of looks like Jesus in chapter 19 in Revelation, okay, except he doesn't. And remember, these aren't people. These are forces of destruction, the personification of these things. And so the white horse is released, and he is, he is out to conquer and to be conquering. So the meaning here is victory. And uh, what is the significance of a white horse? Now, uh, you know, for us, it's like, well, white horses are, are not brown. That's interesting. But, uh, but there has to be some kind of meaning to it. And uh, what I learned in some investigation is the white horse... Uh, stands for conquest and war. So when a Roman general, again, the time of this writing, the context in which this was being penned, when a uh, Roman general celebrated a triumph, you know, a great victory in war, then he paraded through the streets of Rome with his armies and his captives, and he always did so with white horses leading. Now, you and I, when we think white, we think, 
surrender, right? You put up the white flag, it means we're done, we want to go home. But not so in the context here, which is how we study Scripture. It doesn't matter how we use it. It matters how it was used when it was written. And so here is this word for victory, conquering, victorious. So there is, there is a focus on earth here. The focus is what is going on in earth. You know, what is God doing here? Future tense, nonetheless, the focus is not no longer in chapter 4 and 5 what's going on in heaven, but what heaven is doing on earth. And then we have the second seal. And I notice the second seal is a red horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. And its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, this says nothing about the rider here. It tells us about a horse. Again, it's not people that we should be trying to identify. Remember, these explain the signs that are to come before the return of Jesus. And the first one, there will be conquering, and certainly there will be wars. Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars. And these things must soon come to pass. And indeed, war will be one of those signs. And we certainly know our share of wars, don't we? You know, I remember back in the 90s, watching the, the, the war and the, the, this new technology and watching them drop a bomb right down a stovepipe. Do you remember that? I remember our church on a Wednesday night, we, we rushed the Bible study a little bit so we could turn on the TV and listen to the war reporting. See, it had been decades before the generation had experienced that. It was new to us. But it's not new to us any longer, is it? We hear about wars regularly. And we think, isn't that how it's always been? And to some extent, the answer is yes. But this, this red horse, the meaning of this red horse is war. And, and, and we see here that just as God had done in the Older Testament, He will do yet again, where people will turn their swords on their brothers, turning their swords on one another, not standing together to fight an enemy, but in everyone's eyes, everyone is the enemy. And so again, there will be wars. The third seal, a black horse. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. What is this? Measuring out wheat. Well, a couple of things that uh, <coughs> we need to know. Uh, first of all, what's a denarius? Uh, a denarius was a laborman's uh, one uh, day's wage. You work all day, one denarius. Okay? Think of it as a penny. It wasn't a lot of money. And suddenly, it costs 
a day's labor to earn one meal. Not one meal for the family. One trip to Burger King. One day's labor. In other words, food is scarce. The issue going on here is famine. Remember that chart. Famine was one of the things that Jesus talked about as a sign to come. And that makes sense. Whenever there is war, there is a shortage of food. And the grocery stores, know, no matter how well the conditioners are cooling and the freezers are freezing and the shelves are shelving, there's nothing on it. And you can't buy anything. And famine will be a sign of the return of Jesus. All of these things we ought to take note of. God has laid out for us a clear, clear picture of the signs of his coming. Again, it's not a countdown, 10, 9, and it'll be all paced out real clear so we can go, well, we better get there because he's going to be here soon. Signs of his coming. Birth pains, as it were. And if you have born children or married someone who did, you know all about that stuff. You know, they get closer and more intense, and you know what's coming, and you're packing the bags, and you're getting ready, even though you don't know what day it is or what hour it is. And the doctors are like, yeah, it's going to be Thursday. And it happens on Tuesday of last week, you know. But the birth pains tell you it's coming. It's coming. All of these are signs of the return of the Lord. This black horse, meaning famine, another sign of the coming days. And we don't know how that fits in with the uh, the mark of the beast and uh, not being able to buy or sell. And maybe that will be the desperation, is there is not much there, and people have not anything to eat. And they are willing to sacrifice all for a a morsel of bread, as people are wont to do. And then we come to the fourth seal. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, Hades being the grave death everywhere. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. What's the population in our world today? Divide that by four and one-fourth of the population will die. Friends, what we're talking about here is is not there was a bad incident in one of those countries. I don't know where it was. It's somewhere on the, I don't know, it's over there. Everyone will taste of this bitterness, of death, pestilence, wild beasts. It seems that all of creation is turning against man. Death. These are dark times, friends. What is, what is God doing here? I mean, why? God is a just God. But God is a good God as well. 
And let's face it, our hearts cry out for justice. We have been wronged in small ways and in big ways. And we all know the moments where our hearts have just cried out, God, do something. Waiting is too hard anymore. But when the justice of God comes, it comes hard. And while this is not even the final, this is people seeing the repercussion of, of, of God who is so patient that he waits, but he will not wait forever. I just uh, read the story about uh, in the, the paper about a, uh, a deputy sheriff who uh, was going 80 miles an hour down the road, not the highway, no lights, no siren, and he slammed into three elderly people in a crosswalk. They were instantly killed. Went to trial, of course. Officer was found guilty. His penalty? Community service. Three teens for three days tortured a fellow teen. Young man who was just different. And they tortured him for three straight days. What do they deserve to do such horrible things to someone? Community service. God's justice is perfect. But when we think of God's justice, let's not just think about those people and what they deserve. How about the stuff that you've done, whether you've got caught or not, the hurt that you've caused in someone's life? God's justice will be paid. Victory, war, famine, and death. These are not the Christmas lights that would be a nice welcome to Jesus' coming. It seems that everywhere on the planet, everything is coming undone. And then we come to the fifth seal. Then when the fifth seal, <clears throat> he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. A little different. We ran out of horses. But I want you to notice this, friends. The camera zooms in. Everything has been worldwide catastrophe, but the camera zooms. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are the martyrs. Like Paul, they preached the gospel. They lived it out. They trusted in Jesus. They glorified him in every area of their life. And because of it, they became a target. And like they did to Jesus, they did to his followers, and they killed them. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Martyrdom. People dying for their faith. Dying because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. All of these signs, when everything is turning and the signs are clear, and this seal is martyrdom, martyrdom. You know, we, we've seen our, our country change like a ship. It slowly turns. Less and less, the faith of the Word of God is not tolerated because it is not tolerant. It will not adapt to what it cannot adapt. And more and more, the world turns. And then we come to the sixth seal. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and I want you to notice that John's senses are activated here. At first he begins to feel, and he feels a great earthquake. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And notice this, John sees the sun turn black, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. Again, it doesn't say the moon suddenly became hemoglobin here. Remember the imagery, blood red. In in other words, these are not signs that can be missed. They are happening all over the planet. Not just a special location for special people. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. And the moon became like blood We've seen red moons, and they are awesome, and, and especially when they're in exceptionally large. We look and we, we stop, maybe pull over to the side of the road just to take a second look. I wonder if you even looked up this morning. You just saw the horizon and the level. It was almost uh, like a, 